Hey everybody, Ben Beck here from The Spotlight, part of the Next Level Podcast Network, and this is our second episode of the sixth season, and our guest this time around, my guest this time around, is Jack O'Halloran. Jack is a former boxer, member of the California Boxing Hall of Fame, he's an author, but most notably you know him as an actor if you've ever seen the the Superman films, the original Christopher Reeve Superman films from uh, 1978, and then the sequel from 1980, Superman 2. He played a character called Nan, who was one of uh, General Zod's uh, enforcers. He was one of the one of the villains of the film, and um, man, this this conversation was so engaging and so interesting, and I loved every second of it. If there there are moments where you probably don't hear me saying much, and just picture during those moments that I am just highly engaged and listening to every word that Jack is saying to me, because that's exactly what was happening. Uh, so many stories that he has to tell. I'm sure I'm going to have him on again in the near future. Uh, Uh, During this conversation, we talk about everything from his upbringing in Philadelphia to his boxing career, his acting career, you know, making the transition from boxing to acting and so, so much more, uh, including his novel, uh, Family Legacy, uh, which you can check out, Family familylegacythenovel.com is the website for that uh, which I highly encourage you to check out and keep updated because there are further installments that are going to be coming very, very soon. So before we get to that, obviously, I want you guys to encourage you to check out all of our social media. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Google, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, Subscribe to us. Give us a follow on social media at The Spotlight NXT on both Instagram and Twitter and uh, facebook.com slash the spotlight nxt brand new facebook page for the podcast uh, of course last but not least check out all of the other great podcasts that are part of the next level podcast network the next level network.com uh, but in the meantime i hope you guys enjoy this interview with actor jack o'halloran it's the next level Lucky Yates. Hey there, this is Jimmy Simpson. Hello, this is Brad Sherwood. Hi, this is Claire Coffey. This is Andy Daly. Hey there, this is Kevin Durant. Hi, I'm Chris Parnell. Hey, this is DJ Fine. Hey, all, this is David Hoffman. You are listening to Level Have Fun. Welcome to another episode of The Spotlight, and my guest this time in The Spotlight is an actor, an author, he's a former boxer, he's even a member of the California Boxing Hall of Fame. You'd most notably know him as the character Non from the Superman films, as well as the character Emil Muzz, one of my personal favorites from the movie Dragnet, a guilty pleasure of mine. Uh, please welcome Mr. Jack O'Halloran to the program. Morning, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for uh, again for spending some time with me today. My pleasure. Uh, I gotta ask, you know, it's a it's a weird time in the country in the world right now, and uh, you know how are you handling things right now with the whole stay at home and social distancing well, and all that. Interfering with what you know, we have a couple projects that are in play, and it certainly has interfered with that. But uh, you know, with the grace of God, this thing will pass by and uh, not harm anybody too much. And you know, get on, get on with our lives pretty soon. Yeah, I think everybody's at that point now where we're just kind of we're itching to get out of our houses and go see loved ones who we haven't been able to see for a while. And it's, you know, it's it's a test, but you know, I think we're doing well so far. 
Well, you know, Americans are, are resilient individuals. And uh, I get a little worried about the generations that are coming up now because they're not the same as when I was a kid, you know? Yeah, yeah. Trust me, and, I think we all have that worry. Well, you know, to me, myself, the, the main ingredient that's missing in our society today is the word respect. Oh, agree completely. People don't respect themselves. How are they going to respect anyone else? Yeah, absolutely. And that starts at home. And, you know, when, when I was when I was a young man growing up in Philly, you know, if you weren't at the dinner table at 6 o'clock, you better have a good excuse for it. <laughs> yeah. But you were in a lot of trouble, you know. So there was a – and families looked at each other. They understood what you were up to and what you were doing. And it would be kind of hard to – show that you were messing around in drugs and stuff like that because they looked you eyeball to eyeball. Yeah. Yeah, and everybody that yeah, you're right. I mean, it's we're in a time of like it's a digital age where everybody's on their phone and looking down and you know, I I think this is a good I mean, this obviously this whole social distancing thing isn't helping cuz more even more people now are doing things remotely and on computers and phones and uh, you know, but well, not only that, but you you know, you have families that uh, that have discord in their household. And they're not used to being confined together. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of discomfort of getting to know each other. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, which is something that, you know. Yeah. When I was a kid, if we if we had something like this happen, interfacing with your family was a cakewalk. (laughs) Yeah. Everybody still talked at the dinner table. So it wasn't any big difference between now and then. And, you, you know, you I was always there for my brothers and sisters and they were there for me. And, you know, it was uh it was just a whole different atmosphere altogether when you stop and think about it. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, as you mentioned, growing up, I'm I'm in the Philadelphia area. You grew up here in in Philadelphia. This is where you're from. So it's it's always fun when I get to talk to a fellow. I mean, I know you're on the West Coast now, but it, talking to somebody who's like a fellow Philadelphian. Uh, well, I was born at University of Pennsylvania Hospital uh, in 1943, and. Uh, I was raised at 53rd and Florence, Southwest Philly. You wouldn't go there today. But <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a. Uh, you know, I went to, I went to Catholic school in, you know, at Most Blessed Sacrament at 56 in Chester Avenue, and at that time it was the biggest parish in the city. And today the church isn't even there anymore. I was actually just going to ask you if that church was still there because I'm not too familiar. Uh, not even there. It's not even there anymore. They, I mean, it was a huge. Like when I was in grammar school. Our grammar school had like 4,800 kids in it. Wow, that's a that's a big class size. Well, we had uh, classrooms with 70 to 90 children. Wow. You know, I, I, I can remember a kindergarten. The class was so big and first grade that it was taught in the auditorium. And there was 100 and some children in the, in the, in the class taught by one nun. Wow. Wow. You know, it, and you could hear a pin drop there. Yeah. Boy, she was, she was, she had the patience of Job. God bless her. Yeah. Sister wishes. I'll never forget her. And and he, they, you know. Yeah, and just hearing, like you say, like you with a hundred kids, a hundred students in a classroom, and still being able to hear a pin drop. It's you're right. I mean, getting back to that whole difference in times is now like you have teachers who have a hard time controlling twenty students in a classroom, whereas back then you had one nun who claimed the respect of one hundred students. Well, you know, if you got hit at school and you went home and cried about it, 
you better have a good. <laughs> if, you got, if they say, well, you must have done awful bad, and none had to hit you, and you got hit at home. You know, what did you do? Yeah. You know, so we're getting double discipline. So you learned to uh, keep your mouth shut, you know? Yeah. Never, so the nuns had a lot more control over the classrooms. I mean, some of them were a lot stricter than others. Um, and a lot more violent than others. <laughs> but, uh, but you, you know, you learned. You learned how to read and write. And you know, you, uh, like I said, you could hear pins drop in classrooms. Boy, there was no. And when you're in a classroom with like 90 kids, boy, that's that's a feat to be. You know, and I never thought about it when I was in school because it was just a natural occurrence. Yeah. You know what I mean? <clears throat> we, I mean, we had in my sixth grade class, we had a. A nun called uh, Sister Mary Walters, and they called her Bucky Walters after the baseball player. <laughs> she came out of the schoolyard, and she played baseball with you and stuff. And she was like a, she was like a roughneck nun, you know. <laughs> That's amazing. I love hearing stories like that. But you never gave her any lip. She'd hit you upside your head, boy. <laughs> and that. You know, yeah, it's and it's no wonder too when you hear stories like this about your upbringing and being raised in Philadelphia. You know, being from Philadelphia, knowing how it is now and how it was, it's it's really no wonder that you became a boxer. To be honest, well, you 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 know you learned how to fight. Trust me when I tell you. you know, <laughs> I, and I you know I went. Um, we I don't know how well you know Southwest Philly, but uh, it was an era where integration was just starting out, and. I had to walk to get to school. I was walking through a black neighborhood, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so you fought your way to and from school every day. Yeah, it was it was a daily occurrence for you. Yeah. So, you know, but then you had respect of the other side. And, and then when I grew up, uh, you know, we had we used to have two corner stores we hung out on Chester Avenue. And, and we had our own playground, Kinsessi Playground. And, you know, it was the battle of the, of the turf. Because 49th and Woodland was on the other side. And, and that was a total black area. And But I had a lot of respect to the leaders of that area because, I mean, we wind up sometimes fighting back to back in the street. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, I remember we had, it was an era of music in Philadelphia. And we were... In my neighborhood, and I was involved in the original Danny and the Juniors. I'm not familiar uh, with Danny. Was, yeah, I'm not familiar. Well, they did At the Hop. Oh, okay. Yep, I know the song. They, you know, so they, uh, what, I remember I was 14 years old, and the only one that was graduated out of school in the group was Dave White, who was the writer. And I went home to my mother, and I said, well, we're going to cut a record. I'm going to, I'm dropping out of school. She said, really? <laughs> Guess what? You just dropped out of the music business. <laughs> you know, there was two of us, two of us. There was another kid turned, turned over. His family was the same way. Yeah. You, you forget about the singing shit. You yeah. Know, school important. So, and then they, when they hit, they had a hit record and everybody said, Oh my God. It's, you know, but before that we used to, you ever see the movie Rocky where they're bebopping on the corners? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We sing on the corners every night, and people people would yell and scream at you, "Get out that corner!" And then when the record was cut, they, "Oh, come on in my house! You can sing in the basement if you want." <laughs> the hypocrisy was amazing, but there was a lot of talent out of Philadelphia, South Philly, Frankie Avalon, and you know Fabian, and a lot of groups from North Philly, and 
there was a lot of talent to come out of Philly. And there was a group out of 49th and Woodland called Leon, uh, Lee Andrews and the Hearts. They did Long Lonely Nights, Teardrops. They had like eight gold records. And they still drove around in a in a station wagon because <laughs> the payola deal. They, they weren't getting their money. And, and in fact, the bass singer Angus, I remember he went to jail for bank robbery because he had no money. Jeez. So they, you know, there were times that were tough, but they taught you a lot, you know. Oh yeah, they're life lessons. Yeah, you learned a lot, and it's uh, you know, it's uh, and I, I, I Philly was Philly was a great place to grow up. And then when they built the Walt Whitman Bridge. Everybody fled over into South Jersey. <laughs> and we built a house in Belmar. And I graduated from high school. I left West Catholic. And I graduated from Triton Regional High School in, uh, in Runnymede. You, 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 did you get started in boxing as when you were living in New Jersey? Or were you still living in Philly when you got started with boxing? Well, I, I was in New Jersey. I was, I, I was playing. I, I was a football player. And uh, of a good caliber. Mm-hmm. And we, I was drafted, you know, in those days, you didn't have hardship cases, so you couldn't play professional football until your class graduated college. So, and I had left school after my freshman year, and, they, and they, uh, I was picked up by the Jets, New York Jets, right away because they thought I had a tremendous talent. And I was like, you know, 280 and around a 4640. And they put you on a like a like almost like a minor league baseball team was football. Mm-hmm. It was a league, a semi-pro league on the East Coast, and people like Jimmy Christie and his brother, and a lot of us that went up into the pros after we were eligible, played on a team in our area. It was called Tinicum. I don't know if you if you you know where Tinicum is. Oh yeah, is, right, mm-hmm. right outside of by the airport. Mm-hmm. So we played on Tinicum Athletic Club, uh, the team, and we were playing two games a week just to keep our levels up. So it was kind of a, an amusing time. And then when it come time for me to play ball, uh, Philly had a great football team. Jurgensen was there and uh, Tommy McDonald and uh, Tommy Woodishek and they had fullback and they had a great line. And But then Jerry Wallman had bought the team and he brought this coach Q Harrick in. And this guy, and I said to Eubank up in New York, I said, I, I, I want to go down and, and play with Philly. And he said, well, you, you can do what you want, kid, but you got a home here. So I went down to go to Philly. I was going to play down there. And I watched this guy trade a championship football team away in two months. Traded Jurgensen and McDonald to Washington for Norman Sneed. Uh, you know, not a very good quarterback. And. A lot of linemen out to Green Bay for Jim Ringo, who was over the hill. And uh, Ali had just won the title. And I said to some friends of mine in Philly, I can beat him. And they said, you know what? That's a good idea. And I wound up in a gymnasium. And uh, <laughs> and I couldn't box amateur because I was already considered a professional athlete. Today you could. Couldn't then. And, uh, and I six months in the gym and... Next thing I know, Bob's your uncle. Yeah, and you 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 have a professional boxing career. You're, yeah, you're taking on the likes of like, I, now I mean I looked into it because I wanted to see, and I could only find one clip of any of your matches, and it was you taking on George Foreman. Um, you know, and and right, and yeah, and in watching those clips, 
it's you know in watching that clip i realized like now like you you know how especially today boxing is a very technical sport um but in just that clip and i'm i'm curious how you would look at it now as compared to then to, to today it, it seems like back then, at least in that clip, boxing was more of a draw out punch, like just beat the hell out of your opponent fight rather than as much um, technical aspects to it as there are today. Uh, you know, it was it was a uh, I could fight. I, I really had a natural ability. And and when I when they offered me the foreman fight, see, if I ever if I had ever went to camp and trained like they do today, mm-hmm. no one would have ever beaten me. And and I, I suffered from a disease called acromegalia, which I was 16 and 0 as a fighter. And uh, I had to go for a medical one time. And the guy said to me, uh, you shouldn't be boxing at all. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you have a disease called acromegalia, which is a tumor of the pituitary gland. And it, uh, it affects your depression and growth hormone uh, big time. So and I said, yeah. That, so my management were uh, organized crime guys, Sam Margolis, who who had Liston and a bunch of other fighters, Blinky Palermo. And um, they said, well, kid, what, you know, this guy says you should. I said, hell with him. Well, you know, keep on going. <laughs> so if I was, if I was up, but I was in, you got to understand where I came from and who my father was. And the fact that I was involved from the time I was uh, 16 years old, my father was assassinated in 57. And then I fell into the hands of Meyer Lansky and, uh, and Frank Costello and some other people. And uh, I, I was living a dual life, you know. Mm-hmm. I would, um, boxing was like a day job that you had to have in the street in those days or you went to jail. And, you know, during the day I was doing one thing and at night I was out taking care of union business, this, that, and the other thing, and um, banging all around the place. And boxing gave me an excuse to travel to different places and take care of business in different places. My father was uh, head of Murder, Inc., and one of the strongest people ever come in the country. He was the Gambino family, was his family. It was the Anastasia family, and then they changed it to Gambino after he was, Gambino was his uh, was his lieutenant and um, took the name over when they assassinated my father and they assassinated my father because he wouldn't get in the drug business. If you ever watch the Godfather when they went to Brando and Brando, you know, said, if we touch it, our family will touch it. It'd be the downfall of the family. Mm-hmm. And, and that my father said that, and he controlled all the ports in America and said, you're not bringing that stuff into my ports. And they begged him. They said, Albert, it's only business. A lot of money involved. Vito Genovese uh, had set up some stuff down in Sicily, and he wanted to bring it all into America. And there were a lot of some people against it because the old timers, drugs was never in their ball game. It wasn't part of the uh, the equation. And but there was so much money involved that people got swayed this way. And, and then when they assassinated Albert, they came to me a year and a half later, and they said. It was the worst mistake they ever made because he was the glue that held everything together. And um, so I got involved and, you know, I, I didn't really focus. I had a natural ability. I could take a fight on a week's notice and do very well. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Uh, 
it didn't bother me. And I and I ran every day. I did certain things that you need to do. And uh, when I fought George, I was in the garden up in New York, and I think I only trained like two weeks for the fight. No one wanted to fight me because I had beat a guy. I knocked out Manuel Ramos in L.A. And just to show you the difference, Ramos was like number two in the world, and he was. they were getting ready to get him and Ali together. And I took a fight in South Africa because it got me off the street for a while. I had a lot of heat on me. So I, I took the fight in South Africa, and I went down there, and I, I was down there for over a month, and I really got in great shape. And I came home from South Africa, and a week later, I fought in L.A. Jeez. With Manuel Ramos. And I remember when I went out to L.A., and George Parnassus was a huge promoter then. And he, I got off the plane, and I went down to meet him at the forum, and he said, my heavens, you're in great shape. I said, well, aren't you supposed to be when you come to fights? <laughs> and he said, well, well, you're really in shape. I said, I'm going to knock this guy out. Oh, my God, you can't do that. I said, really? Well, watch. So I knocked him out in the seventh round, and then no one wanted to fight me. And that's when I was first really, second time, I was introduced to the film industry because they had uh, they were doing a movie called The Great White Hope with James Earl Jones. Yeah, yeah, I know of it. And they called me up in New Jersey, and it was set up by Raymond Patriarca from Providence, and some people in New York wanted to get me off the street. So they set up with Eddie Foy, who was at Fox, for me to do this movie, to play Jess, to play uh, Jess Willard. And they flew me out to California, and all I was supposed to just go in the office and sign a contract, uh, agreeing to do this, and I was going to go to Spain for six months, because this was a huge, was the biggest movie in Hollywood. And uh, I listened to the guy, and there was some Gambino's nephew was going to be my agent. And it was, <laughs> It was funnier than Chad. You could not. It was like it was a television show. It would have been hysterical. So I, I looked at the producer and I said, you know, he said, well, we're going to give you fifteen hundred hours a week, and uh, you're going to go to Spain and blah blah blah. And I said, you're going to give me what? He said fifteen hundred a week. I said I give that away in tips. <laughs> <laughs> so what? I, you want me to go away for six months? I just knocked out the number two ranked heavyweight, and and you want me to pass up fighting Ali? Are you crazy? I said, I, you know, there's a guy named Jim Beatty. He lives in Minnesota. He just retired from boxing. He's got six kids. Give him a job. He needs it. And he's a big white kid, nice kid. So I, I he said, you're saying no. I said, ah, I'm sorry, but uh, no, I think I got to pass. Well, Eddie Foy was scared to death. He said, my God, you're going to get us killed. I said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of Raymond. And I'm leaving Fox and James Earl Jones is coming in. And that's how fast the word went around. He stopped me on the steps and he said, you're Jack O'Hallor. And I said, oh, that's something. You're James Earl Jones. <laughs> he, said, uh, he said, is it true what I just heard about you? And I said, depends on what you heard. He said, you just heard Hollywood just stick the biggest movie out there up the rear. He said, I never met anybody. I got to shake your hand. <laughs> and Steve McQueen and I were good friends because the first picture I ever got asked to do was Thomas Crown Affair. He did it up in Boston in 66, and I was 67, somewhere around there. And I was um, fighting out of Boston. And he, uh, we took care of him when he came into town, and, and he said, he and I became good friends, and he said, you got to come down on the set, man, I'll get you your car, union card, and, 
you got to come to Hollywood. We'll have a great time. And I, I said, Ann, man, I'm just starting boxing. I'm doing very well. And I think i got to give it a pass. No, no, no. And he used to call me on the phone. And he did a picture called Towering Inferno. Mm-hmm. And his name was Captain O'Halloran. And he called me up. He said, how do you like your name up in the lights? And I, oh, my God. So, he, you know, and then after I turned down a great way, I'd hope he called me. He said, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I, at the end of my career, they came to me. I had retired. And they came to me to do a picture of Farewell, My Lovely. Yeah, with uh, Robert Mitchum. And yeah. I said, you know what? I think I looked around. I had a couple construction companies that I owned. And uh, <clears throat> and I said, you know, maybe I'll give this a shot. So I met the director in New York. And then he called me on the phone. And he said, yeah. they flew me out to California to do a screen test. And Mitchum said, it's either him or I don't do the movie. So I blame it all on Robert Mitchum. <laughs> But that's got to give you a, a great sense of pride, though. I mean, because at that time that, you know, Fair, Farewell, My Lovely had come out, Robert Mitchum was already well-established in Hollywood and, you know, had already had a number of movies under his belt. So for somebody like that to... to... It was a great. I mean, it was a great cast. And Robert and I became like father and son. He was so... He taught me what I needed to know. He didn't... He didn't, never... He never tried to teach me how to act. He taught me about the industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I'll, I'll never forget, he set it up that we went to work together. Uh, they picked him up first, then they came and got me, and we drove down to the set. And we had a, about a 40-minute drive. It was downtown L.A. And he had me laughing all the way down and telling me stories and stuff. And, and um uh, we got down there and I got dressed in my costume. And this is the very first day I ever walked on a set. And he, we got to the bottom of a set of stairs we had to walk up. And he looked at me and he said, you read that script, kid? And I said, read it. I know your part, Charlotte Rampling's <laughs> part. I, back to back cover. He said, good, throw it in the trash can. <laughs> I said, what? He said, and don't let me catch you doing what thousands of people out there do acting. Just be you. Take yourself, he said, you've done enough things in the street. Take yourself and be this gangster and walk down the street like it, like it's you. I said, wow, man. And then we taught me how to look right through the camera and the eye lines and stuff like that. And I remember when the first shot was done and they were moving the cameras around and I looked at him, I said, what, what, what are they doing? He said, you really don't know, do you? I said, no. I said, he said, that's it, kid. I said, that's all there is to this shit? (laughs) I said, man, I'm a star. (laughs) And and that became the tagline of the movie. And the film was a very, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a great movie. It's been a long time, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a good film. Yeah. I I went through a phase where I was watching a lot of older movies and that was one of them. Well, they had the, you know, the problem was it was Afco embassy who didn't have a lot of money. So it was never really promoted properly. And uh, what's her face? She was nominated for supporting actress. And I would have been nominated for supporting actor had I listened to what Johnny Carson, Mitchum had arranged for me to meet Johnny Carson. And he met me at the Polo Lounge and he wanted me to do a show. And I, uh, I sat and thought about it and I said, your show's live, isn't it? He said, yeah. I said, I don't think I can do it. He said, what? What are you talking about? I said, well, you know, I, I'm going to come on your set and you're going to ask me about my father. 
and I'm going to ask you where the men's room's at. He said, you would get up and leave? I said, yeah. I said, I don't talk about my father, and I don't want anyone else talking about it. And I was, I just come off the street, so you got to understand that I didn't want the, you know. And he said, wow, well, we'll give you a host of questions without asking you about your father. I said, John, no disrespect, but you're the number one news reporter in the business today. And you have Albert Anastasia's son on your set, and you're not going to ask me about him? <laughs> yeah. I said, uh, no disrespect, I said, but, you know, I didn't fall off a turnip truck. So Mitchell called me on the phone. He said, what is wrong with you? Do the show. He said, Jack, Hollywood loves that shit. You know, they'll eat that up. And I said, yeah, but Robert, I, and Robert was a big mouth. He knew a lot about me, and he told Johnny Carson where I came from. And that intrigued the hell out of Carson. And Carson told me, he said, you do my show, I'll get you nominated for a supporting actor. And after the Oscars, I was doing King Kong when the Oscars came out for nominations and all. And, um, and I had a dozen people call me up and say, damn, I'd have voted for you. Why didn't you follow? I mean, all I had to do was put an ad in the reporter or the variety or something. And I probably would have got a nomination, mm -hmm. which was my own fault. You know, it's just one of the errors that you learn in life, you know. Do you think your acting career would have been significantly different had you just put that article in The Reporter? Had you just done the four-year consideration? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean I, I mean, I got offered a lot of roles, and I worked all the time when I started anyway. But uh, I would have been – there's significant roles I would have been offered for sure. Yeah. Do you have any roles? more involved with the A-list because I never hung out with them. I it's you know, I, I loved the business and I was very good at it. And uh, I just took it picture by picture that I wanted to do. I turned down a lot of stuff that I didn't like the script and stuff. Like they came to me to do draws for the um, Bond picture. Mm -hmm. Cubby Broccoli came and sat in my sat in my agent's office for like an hour and a half waiting for me. I was around the corner with Mitchum having lunch and celebrating his birthday. And we were getting pretty well boozed out, you know. <laughs> and he said to me, you like that script? I said, I can't. I didn't like the script. He said, well, then don't do it. So I went around and met Cubby Broccoli. And then I said, you know, thanks a lot. But I had already signed to do a movie called March or Die. And when I was on March or Die, they came to me to do Superman. So the Superman deal was a much better deal for me. Yeah. You know. So had you so had you taken the role of Jaws in um in uh The Spy Who Loved Me, do you th you don't think you would have gotten Superman at the, were they filming at the same time? I don't know. You know, I, I you know, I often think about that. I think Jaws had started before uh the Superman picture, but you don't know if they would have overlapped. Mm -hmm. you no, know, and and there were two really huge productions. So it would have been a little difficult. I mean, when I was doing King Kong, which was we worked like nine months on, it was amazing. And they, we had a break. My role had a break while they went to New York to film the ending of, of the picture. And um, I sat in L.A. for like six weeks doing nothing. And they came to me to do a picture with Gene Wilder and... Uh, and um, and Richard Pryor. Um, and I should have done it. You know, it was up in Washington, and uh, they, they wanted me to do it very badly. Paramount 
Paramount came really strong and they got me a breakaway for a period of time on King Kong and King Kong had okayed it. But I said, you know, I can sit at the beach. What do I got to go up to Washington and go to work for? And <laughs> and I should have done it because it, it wasn't a great picture, but it was a good picture. Well, I, so, I have to ask, was it Silver Streak? Silver Streak. Yeah, yeah. I actually really enjoy that movie. I think it's... Well, I would have played that. I mean, Richard Keel, I turned down five pictures and Richard Keel did them and made his career. Okay. I turned down Jaws. He did that. And I turned down Silver Streak. And Paramount really wanted me badly to do Silver Street because Farewell was so good, mm-hmm. you know. And I was doing King Kong, which was another huge movie. So they, um, you know, they were, you, you make mistakes in your career that you you kick yourself in the butt afterwards. But I never look back, you know. It's just the way life is that way. If it was meant for me to do it, I would have done it. But Yeah. I, I was... Uh, I have to say, though, I mean, you know, between Jaws um, and Non from Superman, at least to me and amongst my world of people, the Non character has been so much more memorable. Oh, yeah. When we, uh, we were down in Spain doing March or Die, when, and the crew on it was all English guys. And Richard Donner reached out for Gene Hackman and I to come to London because Hackman was in march or die as well mm-hmm. and he wanted to talk to us about doing superman and when i went up and met with him and he he said to me we really would love you to do this picture and he he said have you read the script and i said yeah and he said well what do you feel about playing a guy mute and i said i tell you the truth i embrace it because jackie gleason was a friend of mine and he did a picture called Gigo. And won an Oscar for playing a deaf, dumb mute. And uh, and I said, if I ever got a chance to play a role like that, I would embrace it. And I said, because Terrence Stamp was this vicious general. And Sarah was a man-eater. <laughs> Somebody had to relate to the kids. Yeah, and, so, and Nan really did have that, that childlike well, mentality. That's what I did. I said, I'm going to take this brutish guy. And I'm going to play him like a child. And and so many so many people come up to me that saw a picture as a child and said, you know, your character scared the death of me, but I love the character. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, so it worked out. Whatever it seemed to work out very well. Yeah, I mean, there's a scene in in you know in Superman two with Non, and he's he's standing next to that the the boy. Oh, and, with the truck. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it's just, there, there's so many great scenes like that. And I think there's even, you know, as great as Terrence Stamp is, I mean, he's amazing. But, you know, I think there's even more of a challenge in ha- in being able to portray a character who doesn't speak. Because you can portray emotion in words, but when you don't have those words to use to portray that emotion, you now have to do it just via action. Oh, it worked. I mean, it made me an iconic actor. You know, people just went crazy over it. And they, I, I, I remember when I did my first Comic-Con after <laughs> the film was out and all, and people came up to me and said, my God, you can actually talk? <laughs> well, so I, I got a lot of humor out of it. It was, uh, 
But yeah, it worked extremely well. Well, I mean, well, not only that, but I mean, like, I'm I'm 40 years old. I'm I'm going on 41, and you know, your character of Nan, in addition to Superman and and you know General Zod, and have been a legit part of my life for 40 years of my 40 years. Yeah. You, you know, I grew up. I don't think there's a year that goes by that I still don't go back and rewatch the original 78 Superman and the. No, it's amazing you say that because. I go to some screenings today even, you know, mm -hmm. and, and we're talking 42 years later, 41 years later, and there are children that are like, you know, seven to eight years, 10 years old, and they're seeing the picture for the first time, and they, they're they just amazed, you know, they t it's, it, it's because they're, it was a great movie, and much better, you know, people have to understand that Superman was... America's first superhero, mm -hmm. and the way it was done, I mean, Richard Donner was a brilliant director, but the way it was done is that Superman wasn't killing everybody, you know, he, the way he handled the, the bad guys and all, uh, and put an end to certain things, was this all-American way thing, so it wasn't dark. It was it was entertaining, you know. Oh, I, I I know you'll you'll agree with me on this point too, because I've made this point of contention to friends, and you know we we recently over the past like five or six years had that Man of Steel reboot, uh, you know by by Zack Snyder, and there was a lot of people dying and such as you mentioned how that wasn't in the original Superman, and one of the the points I always use in comparison for how much why I like the 78 and 80 Superman, Superman 2, as opposed to Man of Steel, is there's one scene in particular where, you know, um, your characters are literally tipping a bus. And yeah. and Superman just steps back and says, no, like, we're not going to do this because of the people. Yep. And in the Man of Steel movies, like, that just doesn't exist. And that's one of right. the reasons why I still love those classic Superman movies, because that's the character of Superman that I grew up with. That's exactly what I'm... In fact, what we're doing now is that we're just waiting for the, you know, the, the smoke to settle between the merger of AT&T taking over Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. And we want to get... Because Marvel is bringing all these bizarre characters out of space and it's getting darker and darker and darker. I said, you know, I put the, I sat down and we designed a, a storyline, which is amazing. And because of the technology that's there today, I want to go and get a license from Warner Brothers and to do bring Christopher back on screen. Oh, and we could do that with the hologram technology. Yeah, with that the, the de aging and everything that they do. Yeah, and, yeah. We, can, we can bring our the three villains, but we have an amazing storyline that the way it works out is that the three villains come out of jail. They're taken out of jail by a, a mechanism that. I can't give you the total punchline. Yeah. But it makes them cohorts of Superman. Interesting. And he now has his own army to fight all these villains coming from different places. And we would do it in the way that the original Superman was done. And it wouldn't be dark killing this guy and that guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's um, like you depicted the bus scene. You know, there were so many scenes like that in the movie 
where like the helicopter falling down mm -hmm. and Superman stopping it before it harmed anybody. Yeah, you know? yeah, and that, again, that's it's it seems like that there's there's a there's an element of of pureness to yeah. to things like oh, that. No, that's I mean they'll never get another person to do what Christopher Reeve did. I mean it was his first big movie. Richard Donner got a performance out of him that no one else would have ever gotten. Mm -hmm. and he played Clark Kent Superman so very well. I mean the look was there. The I mean, he, he went to the gym. Well, I remember when he came on to be auditioned, he only weighed like 170 pounds. So they put him in the gym and they got him up to like 190, 195 pounds. And the guy that did the bodybuilding with him, we had a discussion one day and because uh, I was a physical nut in those days. <laughs> and instead of bulking him up, they made him cut, you know, like definition. Because he wasn't going to wear anything under a costume. So they put design in his body, which made it work so well. Because it was so natural looking. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I don't think anybody... I think... I don't know if you're familiar with any of the newer properties, like uh, Superman Returns, which was a continuation of Reeves' Superman yeah. with Brandon Routh, who I've had the pleasure mm -hmm. of meeting. Um, nice kid. Yeah, and I don't think anybody's ever really come close to portraying Christopher Reeve, with the exception of maybe Brandon. Um, well, he came close, but they, they the script was not great. I agree. I agree with that. I still enjoy the movie, but it still wasn't on par with the original well, so and they they, they they actually over CGI'd it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I they used too much CGI. And when we what made our picture so unique was the technology that we did was called Zorn's optic vision, and we shot Vista Vision on Vista Vision. In other words, we had this seventy foot screen and pole arms that come out of it with body molds that we laid in. And we're like 70 feet off the ground, man. And we had movement that we could move this way, that way, like we were flying around. And they shot Vista Vision on Vista Vision and shot us into the movie. So it wasn't CGI. And, an, and it and an, so real. And people said, wow, man, how'd you guys fly under bridges and stuff without <laughs> wires? Well, in, <laughs> you know a, I mean? in a lot of ways, that technology, as old as it is, still kind of holds up. Um, oh yeah, I mean they would the the, the salt kinds caused those poor guys to go bankrupt, and it would have been an incredible technology by today. Yeah, so the hologram technology would work so well that you know it was just it, it well if we pull this off, we'll do three or four or five Superman movies that'll be dynamite. I mean you because it'll come back in the story like i said we have a great great storyline that just melts right into where things left off mm -hmm. for us you know i i it's funny to hear you talk about the praise that you have for uh, for christopher because i think i read online wasn't there at one time a little bit of point of contention between I, the two you of know you? what i tell you something i'll explain this real easy you're working with people for three and a half years. If you don't have some kind of a <laughs> in that period of time, you know. Yeah. And Chris, Chris was so much full of himself. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And the, the contention was was there was a restaurant in London 
called San, the San Marino restaurant. I mean, uh, San Lorenzo. Italian was the first Italian restaurant in London. And it was owned by friends of mine. And I used to take, the, I mean, the cast and everything, I you know, pumped up the business for them. Everybody went there to eat because the food was great. And Princess Diane was starting to go there and stuff. It became a paparazzi place. So we all used to eat there. And I lived right down the street in Cadogan Square. So I walked up there. It was like my kitchen. I ate my dinner there every night. And there was a group that was in the restaurant one night uh, with Christopher and a whole bunch of people. And he's talking about me and my mafia connections and my father. And the guy that owned the restaurant called me on the phone. He said, Jack, how well do you know this Christopher Reeve kid? I said, well, I work with him. I said, what's the problem? He said, well, I think he's talking about things he shouldn't be talking about. And he told me what he was doing, and I I had to put a stop to it. So the next day, I went to work, and I grabbed Christopher, and we went into a room, and I sat down with him, and I said, you know, how well do you know me, young man? He said, well, I know we work together, and you know, your stories about you. I said, well, what gives you the right to go into a restaurant and talk about things that you don't know what you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Well, wh- what are you talking about? I said, you're talking about my father and different connections of mine and stuff. He said, well, I've heard stories about you. I said, it doesn't give you the right. And the next time you mention my name, you put Mr. in front of it. Okay. And he got very coward. I said, you know, so I thought we straightened it out. Mm-hmm. And we went back outside into the hallway, and all of a sudden, he becomes Superman. You can't talk to me that way. But, oh, my God. I said, so I grabbed him, and I put him up against the wall, and I was just ready to really smack him. And Donner jumped in my ear, and he said, not in the face, Jack. Not in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and so I dropped him, and I started laughing, just like you're doing. <laughs> I started laughing, and I looked down at him. I said, you know, kid. You don't know how lucky you are. Yeah. And I walked away. And that was it. You know, we didn't have the greatest talking relationship until he got hurt. And he became a different kid after that. Mm-hmm. He got very humble after he got hurt. You know? Yeah. I was just curious about it because I, I, you know, I had heard about it online. And, oh, I was and blown it. so out of proportion that people thought we had a, you know, uh, like we had this terrible fist fight or something. And I said... I said, you know, you guys take things out of context. We we had a disagreement, and it ended right there. Yeah, he never did it again. I never had to talk to him about it again, and and he was scared to death. (laughs) And you're right. I mean, as you said, when you work together for that long, if you don't have some kind of a disagreement, it's there's probably. No, we had a great. There was a great cast in that picture, and. When you work together that long, you become like a family. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone would have tried to harm Christopher in London in the streets or something, I'd have been right there. And I would have sorted it because I knew every gangster in town. Mm-hmm. They were all dear friends of mine. You understand? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I could tell you stories about him going to clubs and stuff. And, and, and he used to irk a lot of people, but no one was ever allowed to put their hands on him. I made that very clear. Mm-hmm. And he got away with murder. You understand? Yeah. So it, it it's just it, you know it's I mean God. We had I mean Hackman and Terrence and 
Marlon Brando was unbelievable. Oh, I can imagine. And then I became very good friends. And uh, I mean, we just had a good time. We had a great time doing the movie. Yeah. I, I, I mean, Terrence is a brilliant actor. God, what a great actor he was. And, and Sarah. No. Yeah, and it's always been great too because I mean I know like now we have like the the CW has the entire Arrowverse shows with you know Supergirl and and such that are on TV and it's it's always great you know seeing that DC kind of brings a lot of alumni back to participate uh, you know Terrence Stamp came back to do the voice of Jor El in the Smallville series and mm-hmm. and things like that has anybody ever approached you to come back and kind of do any kind of small roles like whether it be like an animated voice or Anything they, like that. Uh, they talked about it once, and I never followed it up. Okay. I, I wasn't big on television, so uh, I guess if I'd have pursued it, it probably would have happened. But I, um, yeah, I mean, I think Sarah did something, Terrence did something, mm-hmm. you know, and I, uh, I, and that was a good show. Superboy was it was a was it was a fairly decent show. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I watched it for all ten seasons. I was a huge fan of it. Oh, good show. Yeah. So I, you know, I, and I probably should have done something, but you know, I, I didn't think that um, the character Non was a great fit in it. You know. Mm-hmm. So. Just, uh, you know. I, I um, I want to bring up Family Legacy, but before I do that, um, I want to focus, as I mentioned in the introduction, I, I want to focus on one other role that you played um and i have to ask what was it like working with Ackroyd and hanks in dragnet oh it was what well, we had such a ball i mean <laughs> i can imagine it was tom it was tom's breakout movie and Ackroyd is Ackroyd. i mean you mm-hmm. could watch dragnet 50 times i watched it last night as a matter of fact knowing i was you, talking to you today there's one-liners in there that you, no one ever you, you just scared me danny put so many one-liners in there it was, uh, I mean, we had a lot of fun doing the movie. I did anyway. It was, I thought, I thought it was great. Yeah. And you know, it's funny cause it wasn't until recently, maybe within like the last five or six years. And I have been watching again, Superman and Superman two, um, the Donner cut. Cause I prefer the Donner cut over the original, yeah. uh, um, you know, but I've been watching the Superman movies and the Dragnet movies for as long as I can remember, but it wasn't until maybe five or six years ago that I put two and two together and realized that you were when I, you know, the M.O. Muzz was non in, in the Superman films. <laughs> I just never, for some reason, never made that connection. Maybe it was the mustache. I don't know. And the lack of a beard. Well, you know, I, I did every movie I did, I did the character differently, mm-hmm. you know, different characters. And it's like I did a great picture with Jimmy Coburn called The Baltimore Bullet mm-hmm. with Omar Sharif and James Coburn. And and that was a great little movie, and and it's sad that they didn't have the money to promote that, uh, because it was just a good film, and and it was a different kind of a character. So each film I put my own stamp on, you know. Yeah, isn't isn't that funny too? And I'm sure this is something you've seen numerous times throughout your entire career. But isn't it? It it's kind of funny that sometimes there are a lot of great movies out there that just never see the light of day because of bad promotion. That's it's very true. But, I mean, if you look up, if you ever get a chance to see the Baltimore Bullet, you would like it a lot. It's actually, we did the nine ball tournament on MGM's lot. And Moscone and all the great pool players were in the movie. Uh, Minnesota was in it. All the great pool shooters. 
because uh, we, we did the actual tournament. Mm-hmm. Coburn wasn't a bad pool player, and Omar wasn't either. Omar, Omar was a trip. I really enjoyed Omar Sharif. Omar Sharif, yeah. He was. Uh, he's a brilliant actor, and so is Coburn. And it was Bruce Boxleitner's first picture. And you know, we. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. Omar was just coming on a set off the plane. And he was coming to get a, a makeup checkup. And somebody said, you got to go down. And, Mitch used to tell me, you got to go see this guy. Tell him I said hello. But, uh, so I was sitting next to him when he was in the makeup chair. And uh, we were starting to rap and stuff. And, and, and Omar was a great bridge player. One of the top three bridge players in the world. And he also was a great backgammon player. And he developed the very first digital backgammon game, you know? Yeah, wow. All the pool hustlers could not wait until he got there. And they surrounded him. And, you know, we were sitting there. He and I were trying to talk. And they surrounded us. And, and they're saying to him, well, well we like to, we, we couldn't wait till you got here because we, we wanted to play some backgammon with you. In other words, they wanted to gamble with him. Mm-hmm. And because he was an, he was a big gambler, and he's sitting there and he's saying, "Hey guys, I just got here and they're checking my makeup. Uh, give me an opportunity to get my feet on the ground." And yeah, well, surely we'll play. And they said, "Oh yeah, we're just so well. We, you know, as soon as you get done here, we could sit down for a little bit." And and he said uh, said to me, he "said Look, you guys, as soon as I get done, we'll we'll, we'll take a shot at it." And they all walked away, and he said, he said to me, Jack, you got to come and watch this. This is going to be funny. So I said, okay. So we, he went over and he sat down, and he put up the board and all that stuff. And Omar said, how much you guys want to play for? And they're sitting there drooling. Now they, they think they got a book. <laughs> and I said, well, what about if we play for uh, 20 bucks a point? And Omar said, uh, well, why not $200 a point? Now they're really salivating. <laughs> and I never saw someone move the cube around like this guy went around the board. He took 50 grand off of these guys faster than the guy. <laughs> I left my ass off. It's, and he, it's so great to just hear stories of like Omar Sharif hustling people. Oh, it was, it was, it was, it was great. I, I, you know, I sat there and I said, wow, man. He said, Jack, these are children in the woods. This is my game. You know, they're going to teach me how to play my game. You know? <laughs> so he was, uh, he was he, they're salivating. He was salivating. <laughs> well, he was salivating, rightly so. He knew what he had coming to his pockets. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that's what it made me. You saw the look on their faces when he said, well, why don't we play for 200 a point? <laughs> they thought they had a whale, man. Whoa. Have you, um, have you at any point ever thought, given consideration to writing? Because I know you have Family Legacy, which we're going to talk about in a second. But have you ever considered like an autobiography of any kind? Well, the people keep coming to me for that. And Family Legacy is similar, almost that, mm-hmm. you know, me as a young man. But didn't really, doesn't really touch on some of the things that I would like to have touched on. Or doesn't have my boxing career. But I'm doing three more books afterwards, so I probably will incorporate a bunch of stuff but it's um it's uh it, it's very close to my heart and i'm and, and i've teamed up with uh, charlie luciana's son and he's got his father's book um the last testament of charles luciana 
So we're going to do movies, television, the series, the TV series will be huge. Because if you, no one has a crystal ball in the film business, mm -hmm. right? And you can't say what's going to make a lot of money or what's not going to make a lot. But one genre that has never lost any money is organized crime pictures. And there's still new ones that pop up every once in a while that do great. Oh, my God. The Road to Perdition. Oh, that's a, God, that's a fantastic movie. Which is, which is about a nobody hit guy. The only stars are, are, are uh, um, Paul Newman and uh, Tom Hanks. Yeah. And, and, and the picture, because it's a father-son deal, it worked brilliantly. You know, and it did a billion dollars. The movie made a lot of money. You understand? Yeah, that's that's so, still one of my favorite Hanks. That's like in my top five favorite movies Tom Hanks has ever done. I mean, if you if you turn around and look at some of the pictures, even the spoofs of organized crime make money. So I said, you know, let's sit down. It's time to tell the truth. And here's the deal. In the beginning, government, industry, unions, organized crime, we're all partners. Up to the Kennedy era, they were all partners. I mean... I could do things in the street. I would never go to jail. I mean, it was a, uh, it was just you had you knew you knew where to draw the line, at. and the illicit monies that were made in the beginning, they put back into the country to develop America. People never look at it that way. They created a lot of jobs because their initial income was gambling, loan sharking. And extortion. Mm -hmm. Now, if you didn't have any money, how could you pay them? So they made sure you went to work. Yeah. My father yeah. in the waterfront. Everybody worked down there. They had the unions for construction, and they, they financed insurance companies. They financed Sears and Roebuck. They created jobs for society. So they helped in the growth of a society. No one ever talks about that. And it's time that the truth is told about family legacy in, in the family legacy book I tell the truth about the Kennedy assassination I I, I haven't read the book but I need to I really want to I and I, that's not me blowing smoke like I especially after hearing some of your stories like I really want to read this book and I need to soon it's a great read you'll enjoy it you will you really will it's a great read I mean I I should send you the original manuscript because it, <laughs> it tells about when I was a kid I had a man around me when I was a child who, Rip Collins was his name, and he was an engineer for General Electric, and he was the head of the IRA in Philly, and he was close friends with my father because of the docks, and he was a friend of my mother's, so he was like a minder of mine when I was a kid, mm -hmm. and taught me a lot. I mean, shh, guy was brilliant. What a bright guy he was. And he taught me a bunch, preparing me, knowing where I was going to wind up in my life. Um, and it uh, just amazes, you know, little idiosyncrasies like that that you never think about until after the fact. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so Family Legacy is the book that's already out, and that focuses a lot more on your childhood. But you, as you mentioned, you have more books that are coming soon? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Any idea on when any of the books will be published Within the next six months another book will be out and then there'll be then they'll come repetitiously quicker after that because it will already be in the role of doing the movies and stuff and 
Uh, we've got some deals being put together that are going to incorporate every book to be a film. And the television series, like I said, will be huge. Yeah. And the fact that we're going to incorporate Charlie Luciana with it. And Charlie, Charlie and my father were the best of friends. And uh, they developed the what you would call the modern Cosa Nostra deal. Um, and it was uh, the, the relationship between them was was amazing. So there's there's just so many stories to be told that Charlie's son knows because he lived it. You know, and what, one of the things about where I come from is that, you know, a lot of people read books about stuff and they make their own conclusions up and they give their own theory about things. But when you've lived it, nobody can tell you other than what the truth is. Yeah. Because you were there. Yeah. And I was in Dallas when Kennedy was killed. I was at Murchison Jr.'s house the night before. I went to the party called the Gypsum Nights, and I went there. Meyer Lansky set it up. I went there on the premonition that I was going to play for the Dallas Cowboys. And Murchison Jr. owned the Dallas Cowboys, the stadium they played in. You understand? Mm-hmm. And I knew a lot of serious people in Texas. In Texas in 1960, 61, in that era, they had four of the wealthiest people in the world down there. And uh, one of the wealthiest guys in the world was Clint Murchison Sr., the old man. And he was a top mason. And he hit oil in the oil, the Texas fields down there. He was the first guy to really hit oil. And then he hit oil outside the country. And when they built the Long Island Railroad, Rockefeller didn't put up the money. Clint Murchison Sr. did. So they had a tremendous amount of money. And they... Uh, you know, they, there was people like uh, George and Herman Brown, which was a company called Brown Root. And George and Herman Brown financed every president that came out of Texas. And they owned the company. Brown Root was, um, there was a man in Austin, Texas that had the power of the pen for federal contracts. And they put, after World War One. America became a war-bearing country. So they opened up a shipbuilding deal down in the Houston Harbor that Brown Root controlled. And by 1939, these guys had like $900 million, which was a phenomenal amount of money in those days. Yeah. And every federal contract, they were awarded. They built bridges, buildings, bases for the military. Um... And the guy with the power of the pen lived in Austin, Texas. So they all, there was a clique down in Texas. And they came to watch me fight in Houston and all. And I was very close to H.L. Hunt, who was an amazing guy, boy. I mean, I used to sit and have a conversation with him. And he would lean into my ear and he would say, you do realize, son, that you're talking to one of the wealthiest men in the world. <laughs> <laughs> But he was he was so nonchalant. He drove a ten year old car. He brown bagged his lunch. He uh, he was he was he was a his education was like fourteen years old. He took off. He was from Chicago. Everybody thought he was from he wasn't from Texas. He was from Chicago, and he ran away from home at fourteen. Went to California, and he was a card shark. And he went to Texas, and he won the oil rights through card games. 
isn't isn't that amazing that uh, that people who have a lot of money you know whether they're millionaires billionaires or whatever a lot of the times it's the ones that are the most humble that you know are the ones that oh, earned yeah. it and it weren't oh, yeah. and it wasn't given to them they Positive. earned it i can tell you i've met more people like that and uh that's a, that's a gospel truth yeah that's a gospel truth i mean you 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 can't imagine and that's worldwide you know, yeah. The, the... I was married. I was married for 20 years to Jackie Samuel, whose family were Shell Oil. Her great grandfather started Shell Oil. Marcus Samuel. He was un, he was a, he was a, an incredible entrepreneurial guy, and he uh, he was the first one in England that hit oil outside of the country, and he got together with the Amsterdam people and they created Shell Oil. And he was the transportation part of it. He owned all these ships that they used to use shells for ballast. So when he started the oil company, he, because he had all these shells that he, the shells for ballast, he put to work by making shell mirrors and shell boxes and he had a company that did that. So when he had the oil come up, he called it Shell Oil. That's so interesting. I never knew the background behind why that was called Shell. Oh, and they were... I mean, you're talking, they were first cousins of the Rothschilds. So they all used to get together. I used to meet them all. I mean, the Montefiore family, there was like four Jewish families in Europe that were the money, they're the power, you know, mm-hmm. and humble. You were, you would never see, when they list the the financially wealthy of, of England, you never saw the Samuel family's name on there. They wouldn't allow it. And they, and they went, I don't know if you've ever been to London. No. Not London yet. had a unique square called uh, Barclay Square, and they owned Barclay Square except for one building. I mean, the the uh, the things that they they did and owned was unbelievable. I mean, uh, the things that you learned from them was 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 amazing. Yeah. yeah. That's oh man, I could I honestly I could listen to stories from you. This is one of the reasons why one I said you should write an autobiography, but two, I'm even I I'm even more intrigued to read Family Legacy now and I really can't wait to see the books that follow because I'm hoping some of these kind of stories kind of make it in there. Any oh, and, and stories that I've never I have you haven't even said yet. Of, yeah, they're going it's I mean it, 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 there's a lot of a lot of history that people should be aware of. Mm-hmm. A lot of questions that our society, I mean, the, like Jack Kennedy deal, okay? If you were going to ask a question of who would have been the main contributor to Jack Kennedy's death, yeah? Very simple answer was his father. Because his father made everyone so angry. He backstabbed everybody he ever did business with. And when Jack was going down to Texas, his brother was the attorney general. Four people went to see him to tell him, do not let your brother go to Texas because of the animosity down there. And the animosity was created solely by his father because H.L. Hunt and all the oil guys, they used to have a product called surplus oil that they never paid taxes and stuff on and when Jack became president, his father whispered in his ear, he said, those guys ought to be levied a tax on that surplus oil. That tax factor cost them a couple hundred million dollars a year. Think that didn't make him a little bit angry? 
So they took it out on. Well, they the, what what the deal was is that here's the president of the United States in Dallas, Texas, in an open car, with all this animosity down there. Okay, Bobby Kennedy, who was his brother's second skin, his whole career, and these people went to him and told him of the problems in Dallas. He didn't go before. He wasn't there during. And he never went afterwards. Jack was never going to live out his, his, his term. He was very sick. They used to shoot him up every day. I don't know if you ever knew that. No, I didn't. But he was dying of Addison's disease, which is a deterioration of your spinal cord. He had syphilis. He had two others. He had, he had about four diseases that he was not in great physical health. And his father would have rather seen him die the way he died then die of an illness mm-hmm. and put a mark on the family. And you could say, wow, man, that's really cold. But look at what he did to his daughter. Yeah. He lobotomized his daughter because she suffered from ADD before anybody knew any cures or anything about it. He put her in an institution. She sat there her whole life looking out a window. Did you know that? No, I didn't. <laughs> look it up in history. That's there. He lobotomized his own daughter because he was afraid she was going to make a fool of the family. Break out on one of Ray D.D. moves. Boom, boom, boom. Craziness. Yeah. You understand? So he would, for Jack, you know, and, and, and the other thing is, the Oswald thing is total bull. Oswald wasn't even in the building. You, so that was more, he was a patsy for the crime? It was a total patsy. And you got to go back in his history. You know, there was a guy named the Mornchild, who was Zabruder's partner. They were white Russians coming into New York in the garment district. Meyer Lansky gave them a quarter of a million to go to Dallas to open up a garment business. And the Mornchild was engaged to Jackie Kennedy's aunt. Okay? Mm-hmm. And she used to call him Uncle George. The Mornchild is the one who taught Oswald Russian and introduced him to the Russian girl that he married who was KGB and he thought he was going to be like I led three lives man a spy for the American government you understand yeah and he uh, but you have to go back again in history because you got to go back into the 20s when Joe Kennedy, who was a brilliant banker, take nothing away from his ability of banking, and the youngest, first youngest banker to be manager of a major bank in Boston back in the 20s. And he married Honey Fitzgerald's daughter, Rose Fitzgerald. Honey Fitzgerald was a gangster from Ireland, but he was the first senator of Massachusetts. He was... He was a powerhouse. He built the Boston Harbor out. And uh, in the bootlegging days, in the 20s, Joe Kennedy was involved in bootlegging because his father-in-law brought all the, he controlled all the scotch from from Scotland and Ireland and brought everything into America. And they had a warehouse up in Canada and they were bootlegging from their warehouse in Canada alongside with a guy from Newark, New Jersey, who owned Fleischmann Liquor. 
And Joe Kennedy made a very bad mistake one day. There was a load of booze that was coming across Canada, and it was to go to the Purple Gang, and he hijacked it. And they were a bit perturbed, and they said, you're a dead man. And boy, the Purple Gang said you were dead. You had a problem. So if you don't know who the Purple Gang is, look them up. I'm going to have they to, yeah. Very infamous people. And Joe went home to his father-in-law, and he said, oh, my God, I got a problem. He said, I can't help you. The only man that can help you in the country is the guy who's a Don of Chicago, Joe Esposito. you got to go sit down and talk to him. So he went out, and Esposito said, you know what? You're a really smart young man, and I like you. He said, so here's the deal. You go home to Boston. I'll take care of the Purple Gang, but you belong to us now. You're, so he was under thumb now to the mafia and did not like it a little bit. In fact, the only building he ever put money into is the Mercantile Building in downtown Chicago. And they made him do that. And he, in, 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 the, in, in the 30s, they sent him out to California. And if you looked real close and went underneath the Lord, you'd see that Joe Kennedy was involved in creating RKO Studios and the distribution element of it. He put the Jewish theater owners together and he created a distribution outlet in Hollywood. He got involved with, with uh, Helms, the guy who owned the, the newspapers on the East on the West Coast. And he was involved in the film industry. And he, uh, you know, but there was a place in Illinois called the Hamilton Club, which was a political stronghold, similar to the New York Athletic Club in New York. Mm -hmm. And they controlled a lot of presidents, hung out there and stuff. So in 1926, the United States is in the war bidding game, and they're taking a lot of jobs away from Europe. And Europe is not getting the money, the returns that they thought they should be getting. Because they built America. The money came from Europe. And um, they thought they should have been getting a bigger return. But boom. So the Hamilton Club grabbed Joe Kennedy and sat him down and said, listen, we want you to do something for us. And he created what is called the short sale one day. And they robbed $5 million from Pathé Newsreel stock that no one ever saw. It. And they said, that's very good, young man. Now, here's what we really want you to do. And he created a short sale, and it was aimed at 30 companies in Europe, one of them being uh, a company, the Blackjack Bovier, who was Jackie Kennedy's father. And his uncle and his father had a financing company, a bank, that was part of the Rothschilds. And uh, the short sale worked out very well. And they did it for a week, and they aimed it at these 30 companies. And um, they took a couple of days off, and they were coming back in to finish it. And the country panicked, and we had to crash. But these guys made a fortune because they were getting stock at a penny on the dollar. And after the crash happened, the government went to Joe Kennedy, and he said, wow, you did a great job at what you did. And... Uh, now we want you to rewrite the laws of the SEC because they knew that everybody had to reinvest back into the country again. Mm -hmm. 
But the company that Blackjack Bovier had went bankrupt, and he drank himself to death. And Jackie Kennedy's mother never forgave Joe Kennedy for that. She groomed her daughter to marry his son. Understand? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of things behind the scenes that a lot of people just aren't aware of. So Joe Kennedy, if you look back in history, he was ahead of the SEC. And he rewrote the laws that made them reinvest back in, but under different terms. And he did a great job at that. So President Roosevelt said, you know what, kid? Next job for you is you're going to be ambassador to England. Like that? He said, oh, yeah, man. Boom. So people in Chicago grabbed him and said, well, you're going to be in Europe. And there's some people we want you to sit down with. And we want to tie some strings together. And... Uh, <clears throat> First guy he got in bed with was the Shah of Iran, who was a gangster. And they put together a bank and they lent money to Hitler, which he felt was okay because America wasn't in the war. But England turned around and said, whoa, you're giving money and weapons to our enemy. You can't do that. And they threw him out of England. Because the other guy that was involved was Khashoggi, who was the arms guy. They were all making a fortune. Mm -hmm. When he came home, no one ever said why he was come out of England because the Gore family owned the papers in Indiana and on the East Coast. Hearst owned the papers on the West Coast. He was in bed with both of them, so it was never printed. There was no television at that time. And the radio stations were owned by the Murchison family out of Texas. So never no, ever said why he left England. Understand? Mm -hmm. So the backstabbing all around the place was, you know, all the way up through his life was uh, all of it's going to come out. And the fact that Jack Kennedy was actually shot three times that day. And that just has divulged in the last 10 years. He got shot once in the lower back. The first shot hit him in the throat where you see him grab his throat and fall forward in his car. Um, and that came from a cauldron. It took him six months to reroute that thing to take it down Dealey Plaza. And if you watch the Zabruder footage, you see the Secret Service guy pull away from his car before the shooting started. And they had to run back up to the car after the shooting went on. And Jackie was trying to climb out the back, and they thought people said, oh, she's trying to scrape his brains up. But that's bullshit. She was trying to get out of the car. She thought they were killing her next. Well, I mean, and, which, and, and even just the fact that you, you know, you had mentioned about how it wasn't until about 10 years ago that it, the new information had come out about there being three being oh, shot yeah, three times. Uh, if you look, if you if you know anybody who knows anything about rifles, OK, you can ask a very serious question. It was a mail order rifle that Oswald had ordered that was up in that window bolt action okay now you're talking about a shot that's like a thousand feet away or better and dealey plaza and you can look this all up had a wind derelict that was so bad that the microphones on the police cars and all that couldn't even hear each other so you have a car that's moving in a decline signs, trees, and wind factor to take into focus before you pull a trigger 
You understand me? Mm-hmm. And you're talking about a bolt-action rifle. Now, if you're a shooter, it takes 60 seconds for you to arrest your heartbeat because your pulse is in your finger. And to take three shots with a bolt-action rifle in 28 seconds, unheard of, with any accuracy. So the gun was fired, and the other thing was it was a, a mail-order rifle. There was no accuracy of the, of, the, of, the, of the barrel or anything of that nature. So the, And there was a prison right across from the window there that Oswald was supposed to be in. And there were prisoners there that saw three people in that window, two of them dark complected. They were Cubans. Yeah. Hmm. So no one ever talks about that, though. No. I mean, and I'm sure this is a lot of a lot of this is covered in family legacy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> or some of it, rather. Enough to give people a taste to want to look into it themselves. That's at least, uh, you know. Yeah. So, um, Jack, I know we've been, we've been talking for over an hour and again, like I can talk to you for a couple more hours. Um, but I want to, I want to save some of it because when the other books come back out, I want to have you back on, um, to talk more about it. But I, I definitely want to encourage my listeners, uh, to check out, uh, familylegacythenovel.com because that's where they can, yeah, yeah, that's where they can find the book. They can buy the book on, uh, on Amazon and Kindle and, and such, and I want to encourage all my listeners to go check it out. Um, any projects, with the exception of the books in the TV series for Family Legacy, any other projects coming up that you want to? We're building a we're building a four million square foot studio in Nevada, which would be the biggest studio in the history of the business. Film studio. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, we're going to put everything for the very first time under one roof, and not only that, but we're building a smart city next to it. And we will employ 25,000 people in the studio, and we're going to give them a seven-year work contract, and they only have 15 minutes to go to work instead of hours yeah. each, every day, you know? And to have everything under one roof, and I'm talking about a water body, uh, a soundstage big enough to handle 4 and 5D, which requires depth, so you have to put a 300,000-square-foot soundstage in, mm-hmm. and... Uh, we're talking about all the technologies for film, streaming, music, and a, a superb database, uh, and everything that's required to do the projects we want to do. And then we're going to build a back lot like old Hollywood, so that people with budgets of, you know, a hundred thousand up to five hundred thousand to a million can be done without traveling all over the place. Uh, and we're going to make it accessible for the film industry what, to the degree it was never, it should have been done 30 years ago. What's the timeline on the completion of the studio? A couple of years. Okay. Because we're going to build it out of industrial hemp, which is another revolutionary deal. Yeah. It's, uh, it is the most amazing material to build with and allows you to build with speed because it sets so well. It's stronger than steel, better than concrete. It's uh, it's an incredible material. Well, I can't wait to hear more about that too, because that's something that a lot of you know that's that's something that's needed right now is, um, you know, like you said, it's 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 helping. It's going to help with film budgets to have everything under yeah, one roof. And, the industry period. Yeah, it'll revolutionize the industry. Trust me. Yeah, that's amazing. 
Um, but Jack, again, I want to thank you for spending more than an hour of your time with me today. Um, I've been so engrossed in the conversation that I apologize if I didn't speak a lot during certain periods because I was just listening to every word that you said. And again, it's it's going to make me, I really want to read Family Legacy and I'm encouraging everybody else to to read it as well. Well, I hope, you're, I hope your audience enjoyed the show. I, I'm sure they will. I, I know a lot of them are looking forward to, it's going to be great because I know a lot of them are going to come into it, uh, you know, for that Superman knowledge and such, but they're going to leave with so much more. And that's one of the reasons why I love having conversations like this. So, uh, but Jack, thank you again for spending some time with me. This has been fantastic. My pleasure. Uh, all right, guys, until next time, we'll see you around the bend for another episode of the spotlight.